0: Good to see you all this evening. Hope you've had a good Lord's Day as I have enjoyed the day of rest. Aren't you glad God gave us this day each week for us to rest our souls and our bodies that we might go into this world, this darkness that we saw this morning and we can go into this, this dark world with the light of life living in us. That's a wonderful, wonderful privilege we have, not one we should take for granted. Well, you've turned to Hosea by now, I hope, Hosea chapter 5, uh, or 4 rather. We're going to look at the entire chapter in, in one fell swoop, so uh, hang on. It's, uh, it's easy, it, out, it outlines itself like the Bible is, is prone to do. And so we're going to look at it in the three points, the three sections that are here before us. Follow along as I read God's word aloud. Hear the word of the Lord, O children of Israel. For the Lord has a controversy with the inhabitants of the land. There is no faithfulness or steadfast love, no knowledge of God in the land. There is swearing, lying, murder, stealing, and committing adultery. They break all bounds, and bloodshed follows bloodshed. Therefore, the land mourns, and all who dwell in it languish, and all the beasts of the field and the birds of the heavens and and even the fish of the sea are taken away. Yet let no one contend, and let no one accuse... For with you is my contention, O priest. You shall stumble by day. The prophet also shall stumble with you by night. And I will destroy your mother. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge because you have rejected knowledge. I reject you from being a priest to me. And since you have forgotten the law of your God, I also will forget your children. The more they increased, the more they sinned against me. I will change their glory into shame. They feed on the sin of my people. They are greedy for their iniquity, and it shall be like and it shall be like people like priests. I will punish them for their ways and repay them for their deeds. They shall eat but not be satisfied. They shall play the whore but not multiply because they have forsaken the Lord to cherish whoredom, wine, and new wine, which take away the understanding. My people inquire of a piece of wood, and their walking staff gives them oracles. For a spirit of whoredom has led them astray, and they have left their God to play the whore. They sacrifice on the tops of the mountains. And burn offerings on the hills, under the oak, poplar, and terebinth, because their shade is good. Therefore your daughters play the whore, and your brides commit adultery. I will not punish your daughters when they play the whore, nor your brides when they commit adultery. For the men themselves go aside with prostitutes, and sacrifice with cult prostitutes. And a people without understanding shall come to ruin. Though you play the whore, O Israel, let not Judah become guilty. Enter not into Gilgal, nor go up to Bethaven, and swear not. As the Lord lives, like a stubborn heifer, Israel is stubborn. Can the Lord now feed them like a lamb in a broad pasture, Ephraim is joined to idols, leave him alone. When their drink is gone, they give themselves to whoring. Their rulers dearly love shame, and wind has wrapped them in its wings, and they shall be ashamed because of their sacrifices. May the Lord bless the reading and hearing of his word for the good of his people, for his glory here tonight. Father, thank you for your word. We read passages like this, and frankly, they're they're rather stunning. They uh, they make us blush almost. <coughs> but we live in a land that knows no shame. We live in a land that is much like. This one described here. And even churches have fallen into this very, very predicament. Father, we pray that you'd spare us, <coughs> that you would be pleased to teach us tonight, that we would we'd shudder at the thought of becoming like these people, They were your people. They were people with your name stamped upon them, just as we are. Help us, Lord, to learn tonight that we might rather pursue holiness than this debauched lifestyle. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I uh, I suspect that uh, the thing that we as Christians like to think about most is the sovereign grace of God. If I were to ask you, you know, what's what's something you just really love to think about and talk about, it's probably the grace of God, and that's wonderful. And I'm glad that many, if not most, if not all in this room have tasted of the sovereign grace of God and seen that it's good. It's like honey to the to the lips. I haven't met a few people, by the way, who don't like honey. I pray for them. That's that's a sad place to live. But the Bible seems to indicate that anyone in their right mind will love honey. So you might want to get your thinking in line with God's word. Um, Winnie the Pooh loved honey. And all God's children should as well. Uh, But it's it's good for us to, 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 to relish the grace of God. And to think about it much and be much grateful for it. But at the same time. We have to be very careful. We can do with grace what we do with God is good. Right? You know, you've got friends. Well, I I just like to think of God's goodness. You know, the Bible talks a lot about God's goodness. Yes, it does. But it also talks about God's wrath, it also talks about God's judgment. And, in fact, the Bible talks a lot about, and the Bible illustrates his wrath a lot, doesn't it? Throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament, the wrath of God is placarded before us. Not only in the explicit teaching of the Bible, but in many of the events where God simply dispenses his wrath upon people. Individuals, nations, there's a breadth, there's a depth, there's a height to his wrath that we don't like to think about. In the first three chapters of Hosea, we've been out of Hosea now for a few Sunday nights because of one thing or another, and it seems like it's been forever since we we finished chapter 3. But chapter 3 was a wonderful little passage that reminded us that God is going to save his people. And it ended with that eschatological hope concerning the latter days. And that's the sort of thing we like to stop and just, let's just stop right there. I'd like thinking about that. I like to think about God's grace and that how he's going to save all his people from all their sins and in that last day he's going to save all of Israel and the new heavens and new earth are going to come in and isn't that wonderful and yes it is but now God turns back to the people Israel and he says but that's not for you that grace is not for you, Israel. My wrath is. And that's what this chapter is about. Now, I've been told before by people in this church, not liberal churches, but in this church, that they just get tired of hearing about sin and the wrath of God. Well, I'm sorry, but when you preach the Bible, you're just going to hear that. Because God wants us to, to get it through our thick skulls and our, our hardened hearts that there is repayment for our sin. A uh, famous 20th century Southern Baptist preacher, an orator, more than a preacher, Robert G. Lee, who was the pastor of Bellevue Baptist Church in Memphis for many, many years, 40-something years as I recall, he had a, a famous sermon that he preached uh, hundreds of times both in the pulpit of Bellevue but at, at special occasions he been in, be invited to come and preach and they always wanted him to preach his sermon concerning Rahab and Jezebel the title of that sermon was Payday Someday and what What this passage, chapter 4, is is about is payday. And God lays out the accusations. And so that's what we're going to look at tonight. The accusation of God, we'll see first, and then we'll turn to uh, the, once the accusation is stated, then we're going to turn to the adjudication, how God's going to carry out his sentence and, and then finally, who is it that he's going to bring this upon? So let's look at this, starting in verses 1 through 3, the accusation by God. And you have first in verse 1 that uh, call to attention. Hear the word of the Lord, O children of Israel. That's, that's kind of like the little word, behold, children. You know what that means. It means sit up, pay attention, listen. Something really important is here. To be heard. So he calls them to attention. And then he tells them that he has a controversy. For the Lord has a controversy. Notice capital L-O-R-D, the covenant name for God. The God of the people, Israel. The Lord has a controversy with the inhabitants of the land. Who are the inhabitants of the land? Well, that's Israel, of course. Don't think this is, well, these are the people who've come in to cause trouble with Israel. No, this is Israel. Israel. Israel and the land go hand in hand. For those who've been in the pastor's class over the past couple of years, we've seen this a lot. We've talked about the whole land issue. That the land is synonymous with God's people and God's presence with God's people. For the Lord has a controversy with the people. Now, I I want to say this. You'll notice here the way that just compare, for instance, chapter 3 above in your Bibles... Look at that, and that's one of the reasons a print Bible is superior to a digital, uh, so you can actually see the whole thing in front of you. Uh, you'll see that chapter 3 is written in prose. And then we move to chapter 4, and it's written in poetry, it, the way it's set out. It's poetic. Now, I want to say something. There are people in this world that say, oh, poetry, that's so wonderful. You know what happens? I see this people reading the Bible, Oh, I love the poetic parts. I love the poetry. And they get caught up into the poetry and they miss the truth. In other words, they don't do something. They don't take the poetry literally. Because we don't take poetry literally in the in the in in today's age, right? Oh, that's poetry. It's 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 meant to rhyme. It's not meant to oh, well, what does it mean? Oh, it doesn't matter what it means. Isn't it beautiful? Right? And then you take a, literary, a a literature course in university, and it means anything you want it to mean. The value of it is the beauty of the poetry. Now, you attach the meaning to it. Well, folks, listen. Don't do that with the Bible. People do that in Genesis chapter 1. It's written in poetry. So it must not be literal. We must not believe that God surely made the whole creation in the space of six days and it was all good. That's just poetic. Just to say that God had his hand in it and around it and over it and through it. But not that he did it. He didn't speak it into existence. Can you speak something into existence? Well, no, but God's not made in our image. We're made in God's image. So be careful when you read poetry, don't get caught up. And you know, Bradley this morning in reading Psalm 100 is called to worship, read from the authorized version. And the reason is it's more beautiful. Now I'm not criticizing Bradley. We didn't lose any of the truth. And he didn't suggest that, oh, I just like the King James, it's more beautiful than the others. And it doesn't matter what it means. That's not what I'm, I'm not, I'm not taking a shot at my good friend Bradley Clapp and you're a good elder. There's something about beauty. But in the beauty, don't miss the truth. Don't miss the literal truth of what God's saying. So that's a warning. As you read the Bible as a whole, but particularly tonight in this passage as we break into it here. Now. Straight on to the indictment, the case set before us. Here's what he accuses them of. There's no faithfulness. He does it negatively first. There's no faithfulness, no steadfast love, no knowledge of God. So he puts it forth in negatives first. And then we're going to see in a moment he sets it forth in positives. But first it's good to know what the negatives are. No faithfulness. That is, they lack truth-telling and they lack truth-doing. I'm going to tell you, when you live in a culture where you don't know if they're telling the truth or not, you don't know if you can trust that person with what they say, and you don't know if they're going to do what they say they're going to do, what kind of, what kind of situation does that create? Well, it's not a stable situation. Frankly, folks, we live in a nation like that today. And it's unfortunate, it's from, from our, our government leaders' down or if you want to say from da- from the government leaders down all the way to the top it's hard to know if you can trust people it creates an instability that's what's going on in israel no steadfast love here god is juxtaposing them he's he's pointing the finger he's saying my steadfast love is constant yours is not yours is whimsical yours is arbitrary no steadfast love And what that means is God's steadfast love means that he cares about us. He has his finger on our pulse at all times. The fact that the people had no steadfast love is they didn't care about anyone else. They were in this for themselves as individuals. They were no longer a nation, a people of God. They were just a bunch of individuals living for self and self-gratification. No faithfulness, no steadfast love, and no knowledge of God in the land. They don't remember what he's done. Past, they don't remember what he's done in their presence. They forgot that he betrothed them to himself. Remember, that's the context of the book of Hosea. Hosea and Gomer, a marriage. And he's saying... You've forgotten. You have no knowledge of me. You've lost the revelation that I've given you. What happens when a people lose God's word? Well, the best they can do is guess, right? But in this case, they're not even guessing, they're just doing what they want to do. They've made their own laws. Which are no laws at all. They're lawless people. Now he gets the positive. Says there is swearing. They misuse God's name. They probably claim to be His people, when in fact, in reality, in based on what they're doing, they're not His. God, his they're not His people. Oh, covenantally, yes, but in reality, no. Externally, yes, but internally, no. Do you understand? You have friends like that, don't you? Oh, I'm a Christian. And you start trying to figure out what that means after a while when they deny the deity of Christ and they don't have any relationship to a to a God-honoring church. And you realize, well they're just a Christian. We call that nominal Christianity, don't we? They're a Christian in name only. Well, these people were Christians in name only. They were Israel in name only. They lie. He accuses them of lying. False witness in all areas of life. It didn't matter if it was financial transactions. It doesn't matter if it's legal affairs, religious vows. We saw this in Isaiah, didn't we? We saw this over and over in Isaiah. They lied about everything. They committed fraud, remember? They certainly blasphemed God. They made their own little gods. He gets at this here, Hosea. Remember, we're writing we're reading Hosea who's writing to Israel, the the northern kingdom, at the same time Isaiah is writing to the southern kingdom. Same stuff's going on up there. You swear, you lie, you murder. Notice he doesn't say you kill. In other words, they're not defending themselves against outsiders. There's no self-defense here. The Bible sanctions self-defense. This is just malicious, unmitigated. This is they, 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 well, what does it say here? They break all bounds and bloodshed follows bloodshed. In other words, it's it's self-perpetuating. The more they kill, the more they want to. They're like serial murderers. We live in a nation that kills babies like that, don't we? We may live, some of us, Some of us younger folks may live long enough to see us having the same attitude toward octogenarians and those who are not any longer earning incomes and paying into the social system. We may see the same attitude that we see toward unborn babies. We shouldn't think that's not possible because it's happening in other countries. It could happen here. When you lose the sanctity of life, it will spread to all ages. It won't just be for the unborn. They were murderers. Murdering. Committing unlawful, unjustified, malicious taking of life. Adultery comes next. Committing adultery. Well, that one doesn't surprise us because we're reading the book of Hosea. But that it comes last should surprise us. And it's like the all-encompassing sin. Everything else is bound up in it. The swearing, the lying, the murdering. What happened when David committed adultery? What did that lead to? He lied to Uriah. He swore an oath and he eventually murdered and we live in a sexually wide open nation is it any wonder that people are being shot to death in the streets guns are not the problem folks it started with the sexual revolution and it's come to this And then, again, just the big summary statement. They break all bounds. You sin in one of them, you sin in all. We've talked about this before. You've heard me say this before. You can't just break the Tenth Commandment. Do not covet. If you break the Tenth Commandment, then you've broken the whole first nine. Nine. That's the accusation that God brings against the people. And then he adjudicates the case in verses 4 through 11. Let's look there quickly. Yet let no one contend, and let no one accuse, for with you is my contention, O priest. Now first we need to notice that he brings a charge, or actually he, he declares his verdict against the priests, the religious leaders. The priests and the prophets in verse 4 and 5. You shall stumble by day, the prophet also shall stumble with you by night. They were It was across the board. There was collusion, it seems, between the priests and the prophets here. And the result was that the people are destroyed. And then he goes on at the end of verse 6, And since you have forgotten the law of your God, I also will forget your children. So here's here's how God's going to judge this case that he's just set out. I am going to forget you. I reject you from being a priest. Why? Because you've rejected knowledge. It's remarkable, isn't it? Then he goes on in verses nine through ten. It should be like it shall be like people, like priests. In other words, folks, look, because the priest led you astray, and the prophets led you astray, that's no excuse. You have the Torah, you have your Bible, there's no excuse. You're not going to be able to sit there on that last day of judgment, folks, and say, "Man, if I'd have known that," God will say, "Well, you didn't know that," and then you're going to say, "No, you never told me," and God's going to say, "I told you. It's all right there. You're responsible." No one lacks responsibility just because the priest messed up, the prophet messed up. We move it in the new covenant context. No one no one is without excuse. We just read that. And you can't say to someone else, Well, they didn't do a good job teaching me. True. The judgment's going to be greater for the priest and the prophet, for the minister of the gospel. We're told that in James 3. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. But we also have seen recently in sermons that God is not a respecter of persons. So everyone is accountable. Everyone is accountable. Children, children. That count, you count. You're in everyone. You're responsible. You go on down in 7, verse 7. The more they increase, the more they sinned against me, I will change their glory into shame. The priest and the prophet's glory is going to be taken from them and they're going to be shamed. That's the, that's the verdict. That's how God's adjudicating this. And then the people, because the people are like the priest, I'll punish them for their ways and repay them for their deeds. And here's the payment. They shall eat but not be satisfied. That's a miserable life, isn't it? Do you know anyone like that? I've met people like that. They're not happy about anything. They're not satisfied by a single thing that happens. That's the judgment of God. Because He made us to enjoy. They'll eat but not be satisfied. They'll play the whore but not multiply. In other words, they won't be productive. Because they, and and why is that? Because they've forsaken the Lord. And they've forsaken the Lord to, to cherish. Notice, it doesn't say pursue. You'd expect that, wouldn't you? To pursue whoredom and drinking and drugs and all the stuff that comes with the nightlife. The dark side, as we saw this morning. No, to cherish it. They love it. And then he explains what they've done. They've made these things idols. My people inquire of a piece of wood and their walking staff gives them oracles. Spirit of whoredom has led them astray. They've left their God to play the whore. They sacrifice on the tops of the mountain. They burn offerings on the hills, under the oak, poplar, terebinth, because their shade is good. That's the rationale they use for it. Well, we do it here because the shade is so good. Therefore, their daughters play the whore. This is awful. It's just, it's a religious generation producing a people who are producing a people, and they're all doing the same thing. They're sinning. He goes on to call them a stubborn heifer. Israel is stubborn. Can God now feed them like a lamb in broad pasture? Well, then, finally, who are all these people? Well, we've seen it's the religious leaders, it's the people in general. But then, starting in in verse verse 13, you noticed... uh, that he he says that it includes their children daughters and their wives your brides and the men the men don't get off either you know we live in a culture and you adults know this you children will experience it far too soon the daughter speaking of the single Young women in families, they play the whore. They're out prostituting themselves. Promiscuous sexual activity. And then that produces a life. You go into marriage after having that kind of life where you're having, having uh, relations with men and men with women Before marriage, outside the sacred bond of marriage, and then it just carries right over into marriage. Nor your brides when they commit adultery. The same ones who did it unmarried are now committing the same sins in marriage. I I, I would suspect that many of you in this room who have known couples over the years, from high school to college to marriage, have witnessed that. It's one of the reasons every counselor in premarital counseling will pry into premarital relations because they know the statistics. If you did it before marriage, you tend to be unfaithful after marriage, and they want to help you work through that before you get to that and you destroy a marriage and perhaps children's lives in that marriage. And we've become so desensitized as a nation, and it's crept into the church. We are desensitized in the church. We no longer, well, we've talked about this. We no longer see it as sin. It's become a way of life. That's just the way we are now. And God says it should not be that way. Let's talk about these men for a minute. And by the way, when it says in verse 14, I'll not punish your daughters when they played the whore, God's not saying I'm going to wink and not deal with them. He's saying I won't punish them only. Remember, last Sunday we saw the untext in John And the Pharisees brought the woman and accused her of adultery. But they didn't bring the man. And we looked at that and we saw that according to the Old Testament, you've got to bring the man too. He's guilty along with the woman. They're both supposed to die. So God's saying, I'm not going to just deal with the woman here because the men are responsible. So he's not letting the woman off the hook. He's just simply saying, because he moves directly into, for the men themselves go aside with prostitutes. The men are deserting the women. The men are doing the same thing. But not just with prostitutes, they sacrifice with cult prostitutes. It was a practice in surrounding nations to have these religious prostitutes. After all, we're supposed to do all things unto the Lord. Listen, folks, that is a biblical truth. Do all things as unto the Lord. That does not mean do all things and say, oh, the Lord will bless this sin. All sin is wrong and not to be done. You can't say, I'm doing this for the Lord. I'm doing this to the glory of God. What does Paul say to the Philippians? If it's not praiseworthy, if it's not good, if it's not. Well, you know. Sexual immorality is not good. It's not something to be done as unto the Lord. These men going to prostitutes, going to cult prostitutes. Listen, folks. You say, well, we don't have cult prostitutes. We don't have prostitutes out at front of the church anymore. I'm going to tell you a story. I was shocked the first time I heard this. No names. Received a phone call early one morning, many, many years ago. Weeping on the other end of the line. Young mom, we had our baby. She's weeping. I said, oh, my first thought was, oh, mom, the baby must have died. No, it wasn't that. The day she had the baby, her husband came to the hospital and said, I filed for divorce. I shouldn't have married you. We're married against God's will, and I found God's partner for me. It was a woman in their church who was married to another man in their church. And she also became convinced that they were living out of God's will being married to one another and that she could only be in God's will if she married this man who was another woman's husband. They should have been married to start with. There. You can just plug that in right there. That, that applies. We can still have this same doing everything and then we, we guys look, ladies, if you're going to sin, don't credit God with it. Don't blame God for your sin. Don't credit God for your sin. That's what these men were doing. They were doing it as unto the Lord, a cult prostitute. And notice how the Lord ends this. This verse, and a people without understanding shall come to ruin. In other words, you all are living in your own world according to your own rules. And you're going to come to ruin. The Roman Empire came to ruin for this very reason. These very kind of things at a secular level, whereas we're talking about the church here. But this brought a church and a nation to ruin in the case of Israel. And what's the final? What's the final? He comes back at the end with repeating the verdict to these people. Ephraim is joined to idols, leave him alone. When their drink is gone, they give themselves to whoring. Their rulers dearly love shame. A wind has wrapped them in its wings, and they shall be ashamed because of their sacrifices. Shame cloaks a people who live like this and who condone living like this. I tell you folks, we live in a nation that's not unlike this. We read in Romans chapter 1, didn't we? We read there in those last verses of the chapter, after all the description, those those sordid descriptions, and we read this. Though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. And that's what's going on right back here in Hosea. They're offering sacrifices. And they'll be ashamed because of their sacrifices. Bottom line is, they were living like the world. And then they were coming to the feast and giving sacrifices. And God was, you really? This is just going to heap coals upon your head, people. You don't live like the world Monday through Saturday and come to church on Sunday and expect everything to be okay. That's a summary of this chapter. Well, it's not going to get any easier for a while, folks. Because if you look at chapter 5 and you see the heading in your Bible, it says something probably like mine, punishment coming for Israel and Judah. Apparently God wants us to, to take, a, as we say these days, a deep dive into this topic of sin and God's wrath. Now the purpose for the church is this, not that it would drive us to sin or to despair even, but it would drive us away from sin. There's no Baptist preacher. Once said. You got to. You got to get them lost before you can get them saved. Well what he was saying was. If you don't preach the law. The gospel will have no meaning to them. And God's preaching the law here. To a nation that has. Has. Remember what he accused him of? You have forgotten the law. So he's reminding them. So what he's doing is he's taking this Homer, or Hosea rather, Hosea and Gomer. See, I, I, I entered this series fearful I was going to do that. And it, this is the first time, isn't it? We're all the way to chapter 4, and that's the first time I've, I've said Homer. Gomer and Hosea. There, it's a real story, it's a historical truth story, and God t- is taking it now. That's the illustration, and he's now applying it to Israel. And that's what we're going to be living in for the next few weeks. story of Gomer applied, this should humble the most righteous. We should shudder with fear lest we too fall into these kinds of sin. Listen to what Paul said. Now these things happened to them as an example. He's just recounted a bunch of Old Testament stuff. And they were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Therefore, let the one who thinks he stands watch out that he does not fall. Let's not forget that as we leave tonight. Father, thank you for your word. We ask that you would keep us mindful and that we would would repent of our flirtations with the world and we would pursue righteousness. May the Lord Jesus Christ become the, the, the dear one to us, the beautiful one to us, and may he increase our hunger and thirst for righteousness, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.